In our prayer time this morning, we focused on praying primarily for our nation. It dawned on me a few minutes ago that uh, we need to pray for our missionaries uh, in Milan, Italy. Uh, They are in the epicenter of this virus, uh, literally in Europe. And for the last few weeks, they have been holed up in an apartment with two preschoolers. Um, And that's rather challenging and uh, very limited in what they can do and even get out. So um, let's go to the Lord and pray for the Flannery family. Father, we have fond memories of having gone to Italy back in October on the mission trip and having worked with the Flannerys. And Lord, we know they're trying to establish a work with college students and young adults over there. And right now, Lord, they can't get out. They can't do much of anything. And we ask, God, that you would just strengthen them Bless their children, protect them, Father, from illness. And God, somehow or another, through all of the confusion and the frustration that they're going through, Lord, and the nation of Italy is going through, we want to ask, God, that you would work your plan, work your will, and that you would bring glory out of this, Father. May this situation, Lord, open up opportunities for them to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the folks that they went to minister to. Father, between now and whenever that happens, just, Lord, give them a tremendous sense of your care and your presence and your work in their lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, how many of you all have seen ladies wearing these pearls? Uh, My wife loaned me these pearls for the sermon illustration this morning. She wanted me to stress that all of her pearls are fake. Uh, So uh, if I leave them up here on the pulpit, uh, nobody's going to come by and try to steal them, all right? Pearls, I remember when I was growing up as a boy, you'd see ladies wearing pearls, and they were quite elegant, uh, particularly they had a black or a navy blue background, etc., And the pearls were quite elegant in particular, too, because they were considered to be very expensive. Now, Jesus told a story about a pearl of great value, and he told that story to illustrate the value and the importance of one life. But in the ancient world, pearls were even of greater value than they are in our culture. In our culture, I understand they sell between $300 and $1,500 if you have a real genuine pearl. In the ancient world, they were even more valuable and they were more expensive, and this is the reason why. Pearls in the ancient world only came from literally the bottom of the ocean. And so, for those who sold pearls and had to harvest them, if you just can imagine this, they would get in a ship, they would go out into the ocean, and then they would take a rope with a heavy weight on the end of it dive into the ocean. And this is the ancient world. They had no scuba diving equipment, no goggles or anything. They would hang on to this rope with the weight on the end of it, sink 45 feet approximately to the bottom of the ocean. And then they would begin with a sack to harvest as many oysters as they could get their hands on. Then they would float back up to the surface And then they would begin to open the oysters to see if they had pearls in them. Now, if you can imagine going through that, it was extremely dangerous work. You stayed down as long as you could keep your mouth shut uh, because you had no oxygen supply, etc. Looking through all that murky water trying to find oysters and gathering them up. So one of the reasons that pearls were so expensive in those days is not just because of the intrinsic value of the pearl, but what they had to go through in order to get a pearl. Now, when Jesus was telling this story... 
he talks about this man who saw this pearl, and it was extremely expensive, which is what you would have expected in those days. But he wanted the pearl so bad that he looked at the price, and he realized that the price of the pearl was equivalent to his life savings and basically all the money that he possessed. So he went out and sold everything he had and took all of his accumulated wealth and bought the pearl with it. So all that he had was the pearl. And he was extremely excited when he bought the pearl. Now just imagine, he has no bank account left. He has Zilcho left, but he's got his pearl. Now most of us would look at that guy and say, you have lost it. What in the Sam Hill is wrong when you know pearl can be worth you spending every penny that you've got. But what Jesus was trying to illustrate by this story was this. That is the value in his eyes of one life. Because you see, Jesus was in the process of acting out what this guy had done who had bought that one valuable pearl in that he jumped out of the boat of heaven, came down to this earth, and then sold out everything that he had. His life, his blood, you name it. For what reason? Because he considered you and I his pearl. That is the value of one person in the kingdom of God. And you see, the issue is not that we earn that value or that we are good enough to have that value. It's that He has chosen to put that kind of value on you. And He wants us in turn to look at other folks and see them with the same value with which He sees us. And in John's Gospel chapter 1, we're going to see how Jesus goes after a pearl, and then how that person turns around and goes after a pearl. So turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 1, and we're going to begin with verse 43. As you turn there, we are in an emphasis called, Who's Your One? And what we're looking at is, God, who do you want me to pray for specifically for 30 days to come to know you as their Lord and Savior? And then sometime over the next year to be able to have an opportunity to sit down with them and share with them about Jesus and who He is and how He can change their life and they choose to trust Him. And we've got prayer guides in the front and back of our sanctuary. If you haven't picked up one yet, let me encourage you. It will just wonderfully guide you through a 30-day period of praying for that person, that pearl that God places in your life. Now, in the context of John's Gospel, chapter 1, that Jesus has just been recognized as the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world by his cousin, John the Baptist. And then Jesus begins to move from that experience of his own baptism and that recognition that he is the Lamb of God to calling his first disciples. And this story takes place in that context, John chapter 1, beginning with verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Now, that Galilee was in the northern part of Israel. Most of Jesus' public ministry was in the northern part of Israel surrounding what was called the Sea or the Lake of Galilee, which was a huge, large lake surrounded by mountains. He found Philip. Notice the words there. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethesda the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. Now notice, Jesus found Philip, then Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him 
of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now forgive me, I'm going to break and go hood here, all right? We don't understand the terminology, behold, because we don't ever say that. So he'd been like, dude, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, as we move through this passage of Scripture, it is packed full of Jewish tradition, Jewish culture, and Jewish faith expression. And we Westerners read this, and I read this for years, and we don't catch a whole lot of this, so it seems sort of strange to us. So as we move through it, I'm going to speak to that because because it's packed with so much Jewish tradition and customs and religious teaching, if we don't understand that, then we can't really get the grasp of the dynamics of what's going on here. Original recipients were operating out of a Jewish background, so they would have understood everything. The original readers of this text would have understood what was going on. But again, it sort of frustrates us Westerners, so let's dig in and find what's going on here. Jesus loved to speak to the crowds. But he always found a way to focus and never miss the individuals in the crowds. He never missed the trees for the forest. Sometimes we love the crowds, we don't love the people who are in the crowds. Jesus always liked to zero in on individuals in the crowds. Notice verse 43. It says that Jesus found Philip. When Jesus went to Bethesda, He started off in the southern part of Israel, and he had to make a trip from the Jordan River up into the Galilee region. He literally went after Philip, kicking up dust and getting sweat on him. Because he would have traveled by foot in hot Palestinian sun to get up there to where Philip was in that town. Notice it says that he found Philip. He went after Philip. He zeroed in on Philip. He was determined to get Philip. I love that verb there. He found Philip. He was in a search to find Philip. Philip was his pearl of great price that afternoon. When he gets there, he finds him. Now, as best we can tell about Philip from his life, we don't know a lot about it, but best we can tell, Philip was a quiet guy and he was a reserved guy. He does not stand out in the Gospels or the New Testament as someone who was loud, someone who was out there, etc. What he does and his personality, he seems to have been very quiet and very reserved. 
I put emphasis on that because we tend often in our culture to put all the emphasis on people who are loud and out there and don't tend to see people as being very important who are very quiet and reserved. But Jesus loves all types of personalities, and Jesus can use all types of personalities, and Jesus goes after all kinds of personalities. So if you're a Philip type and you're more quiet and reserved and sort of stay more to yourself, don't think the Lord can't use you and God doesn't have a place for you in his work because he does. And that's the reason he used Philip and went after Philip. Now notice what Philip does. He simply imitated Jesus. He found Jesus. Jesus walked into his life. Jesus began to change his life. So what did he do? He had a friend named Nathaniel. And he went after Nathaniel, and he found Nathaniel, verse 45. That's all we've got to do is just simply follow the example of Jesus. We make sharing Jesus so difficult, and it is not. What Philip did was simply say, hey, I got a friend of mine, and two things in this. He cared enough about Nathaniel that he wanted Nathaniel to meet Jesus. When I go and share Jesus with somebody, I'm simply caring about them enough that I want them to meet the same Jesus that I have met. Just simply that sense of value. The same thing was he had a friendship with him. He cared about him enough to build that friendship and to go to him and say, hey, I want you to meet the Lord Jesus. So he just followed Jesus' example. Now, he walks up to Nathaniel, and notice what he says to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, I have found the guy that Moses and the prophets talk about. Verse 45. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, Philip is a Jewish young man, probably in his late teens or early 20s. He is speaking to Nathaniel, who is also a Jewish young man, probably the same age. If you'll think back a few weeks ago when we talked about how a Jewish young man was raised. When they were a child, all Jewish boys went to synagogue school. And in the synagogue school, they were trained up until they were about young teenagers in Jewish law. And then if you made the grade in the cut, you went on to an extended study. But both of these guys would have been trained in the law and the prophets from day one. They would have spent years studying the law and the prophets. So when he walks up and he says to him, Nathaniel, we have found the one that Moses and the prophets talked about. Nathaniel automatically would have understood from his own study in rabbi school growing up who, G who Philip was talking about. He would have understood that from the two major sections of the Old Testament, the writings of Moses and the law and the prophets, that this was talk about the Messiah because all Jews were living in expectation that the Messiah was going to come. So he would automatically have understood from his background what Philip was talking about. And he says, we found the one. I have found the one that Moses and the prophets are talking about. And if you'd have been sitting there that day and watching their conversation, you would have probably seen good old Philip get all excited. And you would have seen Nathaniel getting all excited. And then he says, he's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And as soon as the word Nazareth 
went out of Philip's mouth, you would have seen the expression on Nathaniel's face change. Because he didn't want to have anything to do with anybody out of Nazareth. And his immediate response was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Nazareth was located about seven miles from Nathaniel's hometown of Cana. In archaeological digs that they have done, Cana had about a thousand population in that time, and Nazareth had a, at best 700. They've also discovered that the economics of Cana were far greater than Nazareth. In other words, Nazareth over here is this small town of basically poor people, and Cana is seven miles down the road, a larger town with a whole lot higher socioeconomics. You'd been talking upper middle class, maybe some high class folks. And the folks in Cana looked down their nose at the folks that lived over in Nazareth. And they didn't want to go down there. They were on the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak. My uh, hometown is Richmond. And I don't know if it's still this bad or not, but when I was growing up in Richmond, you want to talk about a city that was socioeconomically segregated. And I grew up on what was called the South Side, or South of the James. And there's another section of Richmond on the West Side called West End. Now, West End has always prided itself in being very wealthy, very well educated. And they have tended to look at South Side as being poor and not as well educated. I'm being very diplomatic when I say that. And uh, years ago, there were bumper stickers that were developed for both sides of town. It became such a rivalry. And the bumper stickers for West End were green. And they said, West End for members only. And so Southside was not to be outdone. So Southside, my, my mother had one of these bumper stickers. It said, South of the James by invitation only. And you ride around Richmond and you see the West End bumper stickers, etc., uh, when I graduated from a graduate school, uh, I was dating a girl at the time who uh, lived in the West End. And uh, my wife, by the way, was living in the West End when, when we met. So I went for the upper class, and I'm just joking. But uh, anyway, I went to this girl's home in the West End, and uh, she was having a family dinner. So I'm sitting at the dinner table that night, and her brother, who was a really nice guy, came in and sat down, and we began talking. And he said, where are you from? And I said, well, I grew up here in Richmond. And he said, we're in Richmond. So I told him, I said, over on the south side. And without missing a beat, he looked at me and said, oh, you're from Dogtown. And I sat there at the table and I thought, I'm from Dogtown. And then I realized, I said, well, I thought it was a nice place to grow up, et cetera. But I sort of got hit right in the face with that, that view. Well, essentially what Nathaniel was saying is, Jesus of Nazareth? How could anything good come out of that Dogtown? And I love... What Philip's response is, he doesn't cut and go defensive. He says, come and see. He knew Jesus could sell himself on his own merits. Folks, our job is not to dress Jesus up to make him acceptable to people. Our job is to present Jesus as who he is. 
Jesus doesn't need to be painted up. He doesn't need to be dressed up. He doesn't need to be done whatever to demean like so he can be acceptable to people. He is fine in and of himself and who he is. Just see, come and see Jesus for who he is and what he is. So, Nathaniel follows Philip, and they go down there to see. Now, I, I, I want you to see what happens when they walk up. Verse 47. Nathaniel comes walking up, and Jesus looks at him. And notice what Jesus does. He says, Behold, in Israelite, in deem, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. In other words, he's authentic. He is genuine. And then he looks at him and he says, Nathaniel, I saw you when you were sitting underneath the fig tree. Now, there's several things that Jesus is doing here, but one of the things that I think Jesus is doing here is this. Nathaniel, I know your character. I also saw you under the fig tree. Now, if I'm Nathaniel, this is what I'm thinking. If he knows my, who I am, and if he just saw where I was, he probably heard what came out of my mouth. He knows that I just trashed him but good. And what does Jesus do? Jesus knows that Nathaniel has just gotten through with saying, nothing good comes out of Dogtown Nazareth. He has trashed Jesus' town. He has trashed Jesus before he even meets him. And Jesus looks at him, and what does Jesus do? He pays him a compliment. Here indeed comes an Israelite in whom is no guile. Do you follow what Jesus is doing here? Jesus looked past his words and looked into his soul. Jesus looked past his present and looked into the future that he had for Nathaniel. Jesus looked past his trashy words and looked at the value he had in him. And because of that, Jesus was able to transform Nathaniel's life and take him to where he wanted. Now, folks, if you and I are going to be used of God in people's lives, we got to look past their words and into their soul. We have got to look at them as creative products of God, not how they're acting. Jesus never called us to love behavior. He called us to love people. If we settle on loving behavior, then we'll never get past people's behavior. But if we love people, then Jesus will get us past their behavior to love them. But the reason so many believers get stuck in immaturity and they are never able to be used of God is because we sit around and have pity parties all the time and get all focused on what somebody said to me. And if I focus on what somebody said to me and did to me, I can't get off of my business and get on to kingdom business. And too many of us are stuck in our business and we can't get on to God's business because we all wrapped up in our business. Jesus said the business today is not my feeling. The business today is kingdom business. This is bigger than me. This is bigger than my hurt feelings. Nathaniel, I got plans for you. I'm going to just brush off the stupid comment that you just made. I'm not going to even acknowledge it because I see your soul and I see what I want to do within you. Now, notice what he says in verse 48. 
He says, I saw you under the fig tree. Fascinating comment. First of all, fig trees were all over that part of the world. They had great big long leafy branches. Fig trees, number one, were a symbol of peace. They used the fig branches and the few trees to symbolize peace. Use our common terminology. If you wanted an emoji in those days of peace, it would have been a fig leaf or a fig tree. He says, I saw you under the fig tree. You just met the Prince of Peace. You just met the guy who's going to bring you peace. Now, second aspect of the fig tree. It was hot, no air conditioning. So people would go sit under fig trees to get some shade. You ever been outside on a really hot day? In our culture, what do you do? You go try to find an oak tree or something to sit under. Let me tell you what the fig tree was known for when people sat underneath of it. This is fascinating. If you were studying the scriptures, if you were a Jewish young man studying the scriptures, you would go find a fig tree and sit under the fig tree and study. It was a common practice in those days because it was a cool place in the middle of the day to sit and to read and to study and meditate on Scripture. Just like today, we go in our house and sit in a nice easy back chair and get something to drink and sit in the air conditioning. Well, that was about as close as you could get to it in those days. You found you a fig tree, you pulled up underneath the shade of it, and you begin to study and meditate on the Word of God. I think what Jesus was trying to say to Nathaniel is this. Nathaniel, the one you were studying on, and praying to, guess what? He's right in front of you. You were studying the law and the prophets this afternoon and they were talking about me. Well, guess what? You just met who you were talking about. That is the reason we look and we say, how in the world can Nathaniel look at Jesus and say, you are the, the rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. How, why would he spit that stuff out just like that? It wasn't because I think he had some kind of, you know, mysterious Darth Vader moment. It was because he'd been sitting there under that tree studying the word like he had day after day after day. And all of a sudden, Philip walks up and says, you know the one you're studying about? I just found him. And so when he walks up and he looks at Jesus and Jesus looks at him and says, hey, you're someone uh, that you're an Israelite with no guile in you. And he begins to talk to Jesus. What he begins to to realize is this guy that I've been sitting under the tree, this Messiah that I've been studying about in the Word of God in this afternoon, he's standing in front of me. He's the Son of God. But I think there's another reason, oh, don't miss this, that he said that. Because when he saw Jesus, he not only made the connection on prophecy, he realized that this Jesus, who could have as the Messiah condemned him for trashing him, accepted him, and loved him. The love of God won his heart that hot afternoon. Folks, if we're going to see people come to Jesus, the love of God in us and through us for them is what will convince them that they ought to follow Jesus and serve him. Now notice what he says to Jesus. He says, you're the rabbi, verse 49. You're the son of God and you're the king of Israel. He's essentially acknowledging when he says that to Jesus the three what we call offices 
of Christ, the three ways that He works in our lives, the three roles that Jesus carries out. And they are this. Jesus is the prophet, He is our priest, and He is our king. First of all, He says to him, Rabbi, you are my teacher. That's the prophetic role. You are bringing God's message to me. You're bringing God's will to me. Now, follow me on this. and We saw this a few weeks ago, too. A rabbi, a teacher in ancient Israel was not just somebody who sat there in front of you and parceled out information and you listened to the lectures, read the books, wrote the papers, and you finished your classwork. The idea of following a rabbi is you learn from them, you attached yourself to them, and you became like your rabbi. Not just in your intellectual knowledge, but you took everything else on. What he's saying when he looks at Jesus and he says, you are, you're my rabbi. He calls him that rabbi. He is essentially saying to Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I want you to teach me your will. I want you to teach me about God. I want you to shape me and mold me, and I want to become like you. That is entirely different than just saying you're a teacher and I'm going to learn information from you. That is saying, shape me and teach me. Folks, when we say to Jesus, Lord, you're my teacher, I'm not just saying give me some intellectual knowledge out of this Bible. I'm saying, Jesus, shape my mind and shape my heart to be like you and become like you and think like you and act like you. Then he says, you are the son of God. That's Jesus' priestly role. He came as the Son of God to connect us to God. And he came as the Son of God to make intercession for us. That's his priestly role. So the, the next thing he's saying is, you're the Son of God. You're going to connect me to God, Jesus. And Jesus, you're my interceder. You're my intercessor. In other words, you and I have got confidence when we pray. Not because we are good prayers but because we have an, an awesome intercessor. Man, I can't stress that enough. When you and I pray, it's not how well we say the words. It's who hears them and who takes them to the Father, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't put confidence in your praying ability. Put confidence in your intercessor and his ability. You're the Son of God. The final thing he says is you're the King of Israel. You're the Messiah. You are my authority. You are my ruler. You're the one who saves me from myself. You are my king. Most of us love to talk about Jesus being our Savior. But the struggle most of us have is with Jesus being our king. Because if Jesus is my king, I have to submit to his authority. I have to live according to his rules. I have to follow him, which means he's leading. And that's where most of us struggle. But follow me on this, folks. I can't know him as my rabbi. I can't experience him as... The Son of God is my intercessor if I reject Him and refuse Him as my King. 
A lot of times we want the intercessory ministry of Jesus. We'll say we'll take the teaching ministry of Jesus, but we don't want the kingly ministry of Jesus. I don't want to submit to his rule. I don't want to submit to his authority in my life. I want to, at the end of the day, do my thing my way. But I can't know his ministry to me as prophet and priest if I don't willingly take him as my king. His power coming down is as our teacher. His priestly power is rising up and prevailing with God. But I've got to take him as king in order to experience him as teacher and priest. Now notice verse 51. Jesus looks at Nathanael and he says, Nathanael, you are going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now what in the world is Jesus talking about there? He's going back to the book of Genesis. Remember old Jacob. He went out there that night and was fleeing for his life, and he had that dream. And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending in that dream. And God was trying to say to him, I'm opening up a way, Jacob, for you to know me and to have access into my presence. And I'm going to be coming down to your life, and I'm going to be working big time in your life. So what he's saying here essentially is, Nathaniel, I'm going to be working in your life. You're going to have access into the presence of God and the work of God, and Nathaniel... You are going to see God at work all around you. Now, this, this terminology, angels, and de- angels ascending and descending, is both literal and metaphoric. It's metaphoric in this sense that as Nathaniel began to follow Jesus, he began to listen to Jesus teach, and he was seeing the presence of God. He began to watch Jesus heal people and raise people from the dead, and he was seeing the presence of God. And then the angels got personally involved because When the disciples were in the garden of Gethsemane, the night that Jesus was betrayed, the angels came and ministered to Jesus. And on the morning of the resurrection, in the day of the resurrection, you were bumping into angels all over the place as they were opening the tomb and as they were announcing to people. So he was getting a front row seat to the work in the ministry of angels in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see several things in this. First of all, Nathaniel. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You're going to get to see the work of God all around you and what God is doing. What is Jesus saying to Nathaniel? Nathaniel, you are in for the adventure of your life. You're about to walk into the ongoing power and presence of God all around you. Nathaniel, you trashed me a few minutes ago, and I'm getting ready to take you into something that is going to blow your mind. That's exactly the way Jesus operates. But think about this. Nathaniel goes to Philip and says, Philip, you told me to go and see Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus told me this afternoon. He told me, That I was going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon him. Can you imagine what Philip must have thought? In Philip's wildest imagination, he probably never thought when he took Nathanael to Jesus, the plans that Jesus had for Nathanael. Folks, I can't say this strong enough to you and I this morning. We don't ever know the plans God's got for somebody that we introduce to Jesus. We know we want them to find Jesus, but we don't even begin to know what God's got in store for them. Oh, do you grasp this? Some guy who was trashing Jesus 
Philip said, just go see him. He had no idea what Jesus had in store for him. And it is so easy for you and I to look at people and their sin and their messed up condition and to think they'll never get any better than that. And Jesus looks at those same people and says, give me a chance. I will blow your mind at what I've got in store for them. Can I plead with you this morning to start looking at people, not in terms of their sin and their messed up condition, but to look at people in terms of what God has in store for them. One final thing I want you to see. Notice that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. That was Jesus' favorite term to refer to himself. Now, why did he use that term over and over again? Because that was Jesus' way of saying, I'm in this with you. He had called him the son of God, Nathaniel had. But Jesus is saying, I'm the son of man. I'm in this with you, Nathaniel. Who is the Nathaniel that the Lord has placed in your life today? They may be trashing Jesus right now. And so it looks like they would have nothing to do with Jesus. Your job is not to defend Jesus. Just say, come and see him. And our job is not to to say, well, how in the world could God ever work with that person? He knows what he's got in store for them. Who is your Nathaniel? Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you this morning that whoever that Nathaniel is, they are a pearl that you've got. A pearl, Lord, of value before you. And we just want to ask Jesus that you would help them to come to know you and find you and love you and serve you. And Jesus, we thank you and bless you for that. God, if we haven't identified that Nathaniel yet, God, help us to do just that. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Those of you that are in this room and many of you that are are listening either by radio or listening over social media, I want to invite you today to hear the words of Jesus. He says, follow me. Take him at his word and choose this day to follow Jesus. All you do is just simply say, Jesus, I will follow you. You will be my teacher. You will be the one who intercedes for me. And you, Jesus, will be my king. Just a moment as we sing, if you're here today and need to make any public decision, I invite you to come forward to give your life to Jesus and choose to follow him beginning today, to commit your life to him, If you feel like the Lord's leading you to become part of our church family, to come. Lord, have your way with us in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.